haven't met, my name is Brian Habig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I've actually been away for several Sundays, and that's about as many Sundays as I'm ever away. So it's really great to see you, and hope summer is going well. We're going to actually start a new series, a new sermon series this morning. And we're going to start a series from the fourth book of the Bible in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers. And, you know, the book of, when you say you're going to start a new sermon series on the book of Numbers, it's not like everybody goes, ah, finally. I was waiting when you were going to do that. That one is my favorite. So let me just, let me say a quick word about why I want to do this. I just really, I mean, the, the baseline answer would be that we believe what the scriptures say about themselves, that all of them are important and all of it is breathed out by God. But really in tandem with that, we want to think about the fact that uh, think about this. At the beginning of John's gospel, there's this scene where two, two friends find each other, or two or three friends find each other, and one of them says to the other, and two of them are brothers, hey, we just found the one that Moses wrote about. And what he's talking about is he means, we, we believe that we just found the Messiah. But, but the way they depict that is, this is the man that Moses wrote about. And then you get into John's gospel And as Jesus is speaking and teaching and healing, he'll say about himself, I am the one that Moses wrote about. And he says that in other places in the Gospels. And for us as a church, that's a big deal. And I really, I want to say that every so often to keep that before us, that we try to follow Jesus' understanding of what the Bible is ultimately about. And Jesus' understanding of what the Bible is ultimately about is that it's ultimately about him, all of it. All of it, and especially the writings of Moses. Well, numbers are from the writings of Moses. And we're going to look at this later. That, you know, there's, there's some really famous Bible stories that Jesus did not quote or refer to. Like in the Gospels, you don't have Jesus referring to David and Goliath, one of the most famous Bible studies of all time, uh, Bible stories of all time. You do, on one occasion, have him talking with uh, a religious leader, really talking to him about the meat and potatoes of the gospel. And as he's doing that, he refers to the book of Numbers. So this is important. This is worth our study. And and I bet that there's a lot here that that, uh, we haven't heard before. Let me just say a couple of things. I don't spend a lot of time on intro because I think we all forget it. And so I'm just going to farm intro in as we go. But let let me give you this part. The book of Numbers, the original title is not Numbers. That, that was provided later. That was actually from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The original Hebrew title of the book of Numbers is In the Wilderness. And that's why I'm calling the sermon this morning. In the, it's about the Israelites' experience in the wilderness after the exodus and before they get in the promised land. And this is going to start just a little over a year after they left Egypt. So they've been rescued. They came out. They received the law at Mount Sinai. It's been a little over a year since they left Egypt. But no one has told them how long this is going to be, and they are in the wilderness. And in Hebrew, actually, the first word of the book of Numbers is and, meaning This is the continuation of their story. So let's just look at this to to get us started. Numbers chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and then we're going to skip down to verse 45. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying... 
Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head. From 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them, company by company. And then in verse 45, So all those listed of the people of Israel by their fathers' houses, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. This is God's word. Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, for all your word. And thank you for the books of Moses. We thank you for raising him up, not only to be a leader for your people, but to write down these things that we needed to hear, that your people needed to know. And, Lord, uh, there's not everything here that we might ask about or that we're curious about, but you've given us everything that we need. So please now, even with this just few introductory words, open up our hearts and our ears and feed us and point us to Jesus. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, two days from now, July 4th. I know you know that. But uh, do you know why we celebrate July 4th? And again, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, but... It's funny, when you, when you see these things where like the person goes out on the street with the mic and interviews people about basic history, Americans tend to not fare very well on these spontaneous interviews. And sometimes the way we talk about July 4th is almost as if, well, this is when we were you know, free from, from British rule. No, it's not. July 4th is the date of the Declaration of Independence. But it was a big question mark as to how this stuff was going to turn out. And I started looking up dates this week, like uh, the Battle of Kings Mountain, you know, up the road, if you're heading up into, into North Carolina, that, that was 1780. And actually, that wasn't a fight between American forces and British forces. That was American royalists and American patriots. And you didn't really have a British surrender till 1781. Uh, Congress didn't really, uh, I guess, uh, officially approve and enact the Constitution till 1789. But here, here's the final words of the Declaration of Independence, all right? July 4th, 1776. And for the support of this declaration... By the way, I'm going to be preaching on the Bible. This is not like an America sermon. I'm going to preach on the Bible. But. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And you really, you know, to, to really feel the weight of that, you've got to read it with where they were in life. They don't know how this is going to turn out. And all things being equal, when you look at just the factors that were in place, the more likely scenario is that they end up being executed for treason by British forces. That would have been the more likely scenario. We have grown accustomed to the unlikely scenario because we know how it ended. But they're not writing that going... Let's just go ahead and get this out of the way, but we know that we're going to beat the British and we'll survive the 1800s and we'll survive a civil war and we'll help win a a first world war. And then by the end of the second world war that we really lead, then we'll be the undisputed global superpower 
and we'll have the internet. So it's all good. I mean, like, yeah, we pledge our lives, but this is kind of pro forma. This is how we talk in the 1700s. That's real. And they don't know how it's going to turn out. And again, I I think you know that, but I just, you need to hear that when you read historical documents to remember they don't know what often we know about the turnout. And it's really important when you read biblical history. You've got this group of people who've come out of Egypt. And prior to the coming of the Messiah, the biggest, the, like, the greatest, and there is no close second, act of salvation of God for his people is the exodus. They could not save themselves. They couldn't rescue themselves. And God raises up an unlikely leader and brings out this massive amount of people from Egyptian slavery into the wilderness. That's what the book of Numbers is about. And I, I really want to think, try to think about the realities of what it was like for them. Because, I, I mean, I don't know what the mental picture is that you have. I don't know if it's uh, from a Bible picture book or a cartoon, you know, or camping. There is no Gore-Tex. There is no high-tech gear. We'll talk about what all there's not in just a second. So, so let's look at this in, in this term. What do you not have in the wilderness? And then what do you have in the wilderness? Now, when I say you, I, I'm, I'm speaking from the perspective of what do the people of God have? Now, I'm not talking in biblical history about the Philistines or the Moabite or the Hittites. We're talking about God's people. If you're one of God's people that came out of Egypt and you're in the wilderness, what do you not have in the wilderness and what do you have in the wilderness? So let's start out with what do you not have? Uh, You know, it's easy to launch here into, well, let's think about it. You don't have stores you don't really have a sophisticated system of roads. You don't have lighting. Hmm. Were any weird decisions made while I was out about <laughs> utilities or o- overhead costs? All right. If there's a deacon who would like to deke right now, that would be helpful. Okay. Or a pastor. Thank you. All right. Anyway, back to the Exodus and to the wilderness. What do you not have in the wilderness? Again, stores, plumbing, waste management, roads. Think about this. Think about even with people who have all kinds of nice cleaning products and indoor plumbing and uh, clothes washers and all that kind of stuff. Most moms do do not want to use cloth diapers if they have children in diapers. If they have all that. Tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of babies in the wilderness without that. And they came up with some strategy. But that's their rea- but, but I don't want to park there about, well, they don't have stores, they don't have this, they don't have that. Here's what I want you to think about that they don't have. Now, all that's real. And, and, and just, just as a visual, do you, tell me if you know these names. Max and Miriam Yazger. You ever heard those names? I want to see if I see any nods in the room. Max and Miriam Yazger. They were the owners of the farm in New York State where 
they allowed permission for this event called Woodstock on their land, which was supposed to just be three days long. It ended up being about four days long. Have you ever seen photographs of their farm post-Woodstock? It was decimated. Now, the number, according to Joni Mitchell, by the time we got to Woodstock, we were half a million strong. So let's go with half a million. Half a million people decimated this farmland in four days. Try, okay, if you've got 603,000 plus, those are just able-bodied males. Then, you know, as I was reading commentaries, the consensus would be you're probably looking at a group of around 2 million plus people. 2 million people, but they might stay in one spot for a month or two months. No plumbing, no porta potties, no, I mean, just on and on and on. Now, there's that reality, but I, that, I think, is not the biggest absence. What do you not have in the wilderness? You do not have a timeline, and you do not have efficiency. And what do I mean by that? God does not bring the people out into the wilderness and say, and, and say here are the benchmarks. Here is the actual map of your route that you will take. Here's where you can, here, I've provided all of you a little laminated uh, list with check boxes where you can follow the progress of me taking you through. Podcast listeners are going to wonder, what was their little joke going on that Sunday? It's going to take you through your trip through the wilderness. God does not provide that. And for that matter, God doesn't say, all right, I brought you out of Egypt. By the way, if you're new here for some reason, this is always the past and this is always the future. This is Exodus. This is the promised land. I don't know why it works that way, but it does. I've brought you out of Egypt. I've brought you out of slavery. I'm going to bring you to Mount Sinai to give you my law and my expectations. And then we're going to take the most efficient, plausible route to the promised land. Like God does the opposite of that. He doesn't give answers. He doesn't give a flow chart. He does not give a timeline. And he doesn't do it in an efficient way. I mean, think about this. Think about if you could go back in time. And you could, I'm going to think again of a mother of young children. Let's say you could talk to, in the wilderness, you could speak her language and you didn't look frightening to her. What if you could talk to an Israelite mother? And you said to her, Wow, you, you are part of the people that God has set apart. You have been brought out of slavery by, Mo, by the Moses, really by the God, unlike all the other gods. And you're going to be brought into the promised land. Like, what if she looked at you and said, I have a two-year-old and a newborn. When do we get answers? What would you say? Let me, let me read you this. And this is interesting. I was, I was reading a commentary. This is by somebody that's a real Old Testament scholar, PhD from Cambridge and all that. But listen to how he nails it. Not a long quote. What are the chief temptations of life in the wilderness? The first temptation is surely the danger of losing the plot. I think this is so insightful. He says the first daunting temptation of life in the wilderness is that you lose the plot. You lose the storyline. 
The people of Israel were constantly tempted to doubt that there really was a promised land ahead. All they could see with their eyes was the barrenness of the wilderness. All they could hear with their ears was the howling wasteland around them. All they could taste on their tongues was the hunger and the thirst of the wilderness. The wilderness was very real. And the obstacles in terms of opposition and lack of resources were very visible, while the promised land seemed very remote. Life must often have seemed to be a succession of completely unrelated and random events that were getting them nowhere. How could they not feel that way? We've been traveling for 10 years and we have no answer about when we get in. 20 years, 30 years. They surely felt as if their whole lives were slipping away from them in one meaningless round of unsatisfying experiences. Man, if only the Old Testament were relevant. If only that had anything to do with our lives. But it doesn't because we have the Internet and Whole Foods. Let's close in prayer. That's our lives. That is our lives. Because I said, all right, prior to the coming of the Messiah, the greatest act of salvation was the Exodus. The wilderness generation, the people in the book of Numbers, live between God's, up to that point, greatest act of deliverance and the inheritance, the fulfillment of the promises, the land. And all, for the most part, all they can see and feel is how hard it is and they're not getting their questions answered, and they're not getting a timeline, and it's inefficient, and if God loves us as much as he says he does, why would he do it this way? So that this seems like an abstraction and a platitude, and it's not as real as the heat and the cold and the thirst and the crying babies. Well, guess what? We are the wilderness generation. And all kinds of Christians for 2,000 years have recognized this parallel. At one point, the most famous Christian book in the world, not the Bible, was Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And it's an allegory. It's an allegory. It's a story of someone's trip. And the trip is the Christian life getting to the celestial city. The first words of that story, after this poem at the beginning, the first words of that story... As I walked through the wilderness of this world. We are, if, if you are a believer in the Messiah, the seed of Abraham, the one that Moses wrote about, then you live in between our great exodus. And in the Gospel of Luke, what Jesus did is called an exodus. To lead people out of bondage and slavery to sin and death. And to secure for them a future promised land, a future home and inheritance that is not an abstraction. That is real and ultimately tangible one day. We live in between it. What seems real to us? Fights. Family tensions. Physical pain. Bills an impossible-to-please supervisor or employer, doubt, fatigue, like, that's all well and good, this is real. 
And in the wilderness, you do not get a timeline, nor do you get efficiency. Because what would be efficient? Save me, and then just take me to heaven. What good does it do for me to suffer 20, 40, 70, 80 years? What benefit is that if you're going to bring me into the promised land? What benefit is that? It's inefficient from our point of view. I think there's something clarifying about saying what you don't get in the wilderness is timeline and efficiency. And by the way, I've seen at least one bright writer and uh, cultural critic say if, if there's any American virtue right now, it's efficiency. Like we, If something is efficient, that just almost inherently makes it to us valuable and worthwhile. So what do you have in the wilderness? Well, the Israelites had at least a couple of big things. Now, they, there was stuff. It says, you know, in the account of the Exodus, that the night of the Passover, that they asked their Egyptian neighbors for stuff. They, especially they asked them for valuables, and God moved the hearts of the Egyptians to give them things. That's, that was some of the stuff they made the tabernacle out of. Where did they get gold and precious stones and ram skins and all that stuff. They got it from, from the Egyptians. So they have that, but like on a grander, bigger scale, on a more important scale, what do you have in the wilderness? Number one, you have God's promises. And, and it's interesting, just even, I think, even as I say those words, you have God's promises. When you're really hurting and you're really tired in the grind of the world, just really on you. I think when you hear God's promises, it, you can just feel like blah, blah, blah. All right, you're, we're wilderness people. They had God's promises. What were some of God's promises? Who did God make the promises to? To, to whom did God make the promises? Abraham. What did God promise Abraham? Uh, several things. I'm going to make of you a massive nation. A huge people. It'd be like the sand on the seashore. It'd be like the stars in the sky. He's saying this to an old man whose wife uh, is infertile, is barren. I'm going to make of you, you old man, I'm going to make of you a gigantic nation. Now, I'm sure when Abraham heard that, well, we know because it records it. He just, well, like, how would you do that? That, that, how could that possibly work? And you look up here, these are all the genealogical descendants of Abraham. How many? Uh, just males, 20 years and up, 603,550. 400 and something years into this project. You can look around and, and see God fulfills his promises. And who would take people into slavery and captivity to build a nation, and that's how God does it. God fulfills his promises. Look around. What else did God promise Abraham? Abraham, your descendants for a period are going to be in captivity. And then I'm going to bring them out. What had these people just experienced? Wow. The very thing that God promised Abraham happened. Generations in Egypt. And then he brought us out. So then what's the other promise? The big one that they talked about all the time. 
the land. After you worked other people's land, after you didn't have your own farms, you didn't have your own vineyards, I'm going to take you through the wilderness into the promised land. And boy, because you saw God fulfill the promise of all these descendants and God fulfill the promise of bringing you out of captivity, boy, you're, you're always going to know that he's going to keep that promise of the land and you're going to be patient and really trust his timeline, right? Uh, the book of Numbers is a front row seat to grumbling and complaining and rebellion and distrust of clergy and on and on and on. But they had the promises. Some fulfilled all around them already. But there's one other biggie that they have, and I I really want this one to get in our hearts. Because it's easy to read this little phrase and not not catch the weight of it. Go back to verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting. What is the tent of meeting? That's just another name for the tabernacle. And books like Leviticus and Numbers explain how this was laid out, but the way the Israelites camped was not haphazard. You had these tribes on the north and these on the south and the east and the west. But the tent that was in the middle of all the Israelite tents was God's tent, the tabernacle. And and it's this mystery that the universe can't contain him. He doesn't dwell in buildings made by people, and yet in some particular special way, he identified and dwelt in the holy of holies, in the tabernacle, his tent in the middle of all their tents. In other words, he says, I'm calling you out into the wilderness. And I'm going to bring you into the promised land. But as I do that, I am going to be in the wilderness with you. And again, this is where, if you're familiar with the story, this is where you have to get up over it and think about what that means for a second. Because when you hear something like, hey, God, God placed himself in the midst of the Israelite people, what that can sound like is he wanted to be with the Israelite people because, of course, they were the kind of people you'd like to be with. Well, keep reading Numbers. They don't trust him. They accuse the people that he, lifts up, that he raises up to leave them. They question him. They disobey him. They wander off. And so what happens to his tent? Does he depart it? Does he withdraw his tent? He stays with his people. In their confusion and in their knuckleheadedness, and in their stiff-neckedness, he is with them in the wilderness. You don't have a timeline, and you don't have efficiency. But in the wilderness, you have his promises, and you have him. If you don't hear anything else I say, please hear this. It really is like God saying, I know you want a flowchart for your life. I know you want dates and details, and when am I going to die, if I'm going to die soon, do I actually need a 401k? Can I spend that on more vacation? And, and, and on and on and on. I know you want me to spell out everything and answer all the questions and there not be any mystery and you not have to trust me. And you want me to do everything in your life 
as efficiently as possible where it's clear and makes sense to you. I'm not going to give you that. I'm going to give you my word, and I'm going to give you myself. That was their wilderness, and that's our wilderness. Let me ask you this morning... You may be here this morning, and, and uh, even as Jonathan referred to when we started, that you're just starting to explore these things. Like you're really just starting to learn about the Bible and biblical claims, and specifically you're just now learning about the person and the claims of Jesus and what it means to follow him. Let me say this. First off, I'm so glad you're here. That's very exciting. And that really makes me think that God is already at work in your life. But I want, you, I want you to connect the dots on this specifically, is that in the New Testament, here's what comes through loud and clear, that now, now, the way to be a child of Abraham is not genealogical descent. The way to be identified with someone like Moses is not genealogical descent. The way you become a child of Abraham, the way you actually receive things that are promised to him is through faith. Is by believing in the ultimate son of Abraham, the ultimate son of David, Jesus. The one that Moses wrote about. And if that's you, if, you, if you're a brand new believer or you're... Or really not yet a believer, I want to say this to you. When we talk about Christ has come, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That at Christ's return, there's a new heaven and a new earth, and it's tangible, and our souls and our bodies are transformed and glorified. And we, and we do the thing that we just sang about, that we sing through eternity, and we have joy I get it. That like if you're unemployed or you want to be married and you're not or you're married and you wish your marriage was different or you're depressed or your family's dysfunctional or you experience more physical pain than people realize or, or whatever version of this just grinding world you want to talk about. As you're in the midst of this, it can feel like that's real, and that's kind of a nice thought. I understand how you can feel that way, but I still don't want to give you a pass. I don't want to give any of us a pass. I want to say to you on biblical grounds, the evidence of God keeping his promises is all around us. And God has promised, after the wilderness, inheritance. After the after the wilderness, land and joy and harvest and celebration. Christ came to secure that for messed up people like, like us, but he calls you to believe. To take him at his word without timeline and with the inefficiencies that he is going to bring into your life. So I would call you to believe. I would invite you to believe. But, but what about for the person who does believe but doesn't believe? 
Now, I know I quote this, but I am so thankful to God that he let us have the record of the guy that comes to Jesus needing a miracle. And this is so good. He says to Jesus, just if you can do anything. And Jesus wheels around to him and says, if, if you can do anything. Anything is possible for those who believe. And immediately, the, uh, you just get the sense that he just, just popped out of his mouth. I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. That, boy, that's us. Now, you might be here and say, I, I do believe. I do believe Jesus brought me out of the captivity of sin and death. I do believe we're headed to the promised land. But I'm so discouraged. Like, I'm so tired. I'm tired of church. I'm tired of work. I'm tired of being down. I'm just tired. I'm tired of this hard world. Listen, we live in the wilderness. This is normal. I'm not saying there's not moments of celebration and joy. God brings those. But we live in the wilderness. This is normal normal. But God is with us. He didn't just come and pitch his tent in the body. Jesus. That's the way John's gospel reads. The word became flesh and in Greek he pitched his tent in our midst. And the tent is his humanity. That's his tabernacle. But then he goes back to heaven. Where is his tabernacle now? Where is his temple now? How does he dwell in us? By his Holy Spirit, the God who inhabited the tabernacle, the temple. The God who inhabited the Holy of Holies inhabits people who believe we become his temple. So that Jesus, as he's about to leave and ascend into heaven, says, I mean, he's about to physically go away. He says, I am with you. Always to the end of the age. It's not a mystery to him that you're tired. It's not a mystery to him that you are sick of being sick, tired of being tired, that unemployment is not fun, that family tension is not. That's not a mystery to him. He is with you. In the wilderness. Trust Him. He is taking you to the promised land. And it is real. Amen. Let's pray. Father, for Your Word, thank You for people that we did not know that we don't have photos of, but with whom we can greatly relate. Thank you, the people of the wilderness. In our wilderness, Father, forgive us for our grumbling, our complaining, our impatience, our unbelief. Would you make it wonderful to us that we have your promises which cannot fail? Your promises cannot fail. And that we have you. You are not distant. You are with us by your Spirit. You are in us as we believe. 
We ask that you make this heartfelt to us and lift us up as we journey in this wilderness. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.